0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: This is kind of like a storytelling. I'm going to tell you kind of a little bit of the trajectory, so bear with me. Um, So it's 2020, and uh, by chance I come across a paper that is called Rethinking Autism. Uh, By Ann Donnellan. And I was at the time having a hard time publishing uh, the the research that the results I had found uh, excessive uh, noise and randomness in the motor code. And um, I flew to San Diego. She was the provost of the uh, University of San Diego at the time and uh, gave me an appointment from her busy schedule. And we met. And I proposed uh, that we do a research topic in, in the Frontiers platform uh, on taking autism from a different perspective, from the movement perspective. And we gathered, she agreed to that. So we gathered 90 authors and, uh, and then we, we launched the topic. And I think that that um, was not actually a chance because today we have, um, you know, well over half a million viewers and in people interested all over the world. So I think that we did the right thing. And there was something there cooking uh that at the time was uh just a nascent thing, but then it took off. And later in 2015, I'm still in this mode of like trying to publish and not being able to get the the, the results across in the in the research field of autism and, and trying to have them see the significance of. of of what this means for, for behavior and for everything that you're, you're measuring or trying to measure. And I came across this paper in science on precision medicine, uh, proposing that we're at an inflection point in medicine where uh, the, the, the incumbent curve is it's all about data collection and description uh, within disciplines. And the nascent and the curve uh, taking off, uh, we're, we're poised to this, this very fast, rapid takeoff uh, for precision medicine, meaning personalized medicine that combines all these layers of uh, knowledge in the knowledge network and comes up with some kind of uh, personalized profile of the person has been uh, successful in cancer uh, targeted treatment. So I thought, why don't I recast the problem of autism uh, in the context of precision medicine? Perhaps people will see the importance of what I'm trying to do here and so uh the idea is to take behaviors which is the layer that uh poses the main barrier for me to do quantitative science uh because it's all observational or it was all observational at the time and and shift from a one-size-fits-all umbrella kind of blanket term, uh, which is very heterogeneous and really uh, hard to handle, uh, and utilize the genomic information that we have and come up with a stratified autism that then uh, enables us to do uh, a precision model of autism with like a sort of fingerprint describing uh, all these um features at a precision level uh, and, and the signatures of, of the person in terms of the behavior. But doing that not under the current deficit model that we have, which is just a laundry list of things that are wrong with the system, but rather uh, do it in a way that gives us a chance to get the at the readiness potential of the individual and harness really the capabilities and the predispositions of the nervous system that ultimately is combining all of this information and producing purposeful behavior so that uh, we completely come into a paradigm shift of what we're doing. And to do so, I wanted to leverage three uh, contemporary revolutions, the neuroscience revolution, the genomics revolution, and the wearables biosensor revolution, which is severely subutilized in autism. And I come from a different field altogether, which very successfully has been using the wearables to uh basically digitized behavior. So to do that, I came up with this kind of branding idea of uh, let's reformulate behavior analysis into intelligent behavior analysis, and shift for from this vantage point of an external observer that is guessing and theorizing, and sort of trying to infer what's happening uh, in the brain and the mind and the body of that person, by combining it with wearables, sensors that Uh, actually read out the internal uh, uh, information in in the nervous system, in the brain, and and can get us to the the mind, uh, the mental spaces and the physical spaces. So I decided that the time was right to actually combine this external observer with the internal observer using off-the-shelf technology that then would enable us to launch this at a scale and digitize behavior. Uh, And But then the other thing to do was to come up with a compact set of tasks uh, that would enable us to move these to the uh, home environment, to the schools and to the places where uh, life happens uh, naturally. And so I I took this uh, old uh, biomechanic pointing task that is very rich nonetheless and very difficult to model in in robotics uh, to get Information about the voluntary states and the spontaneous states of the system along a taxonomy that I designed to study all the states, but in particular these two, because in a simple task like this, when you move forward to the target, you learn based on error correction. But then there is an incidental motion when you retract the hand, uh, very very much beneath awareness that you could utilize to uh, retrain the nervous system without with minimal um intervention meaning not upsetting or stressing the system that uh would get upset otherwise by prompting and so on and in addition to that we could get this uh paradigm converted to a cognitive driven paradigm and establish different levels of cognitive loads and and decision making and bring it to a completely different realm of cognition and so there we would be bridging movement and, and cognition, movement and its sensations with cognition. And then we got this uh, on the road and went to the, this is at a school uh, uh, nearby the, the campus where uh, they they train children with these uh, applied behavior analysis paradigm, but they do it in a way that really robs the child from its autonomy, from its agency. So I, I said, let's do it with support first, but move towards, uh, a, a completely autonomous I way of see. doing things and banking instead of uh, external rewards banking on the intrinsic rewards that the nervous system gets from being I autonomous see. from owning the action mm-hmm. from owning the consequences of the action okay. and understanding that it is me doing this and i own this action it is me in control I here see. so the children got yeah. their their intrinsic reward they became uh, you know, this, we gamify these uh, activities and so forth. And in the meantime, we're digitizing everything that they're doing. So I realized that the handful of people that were using biosensors were following a rather uh, old approach, uh, which was uh, assume a priori, a theoretical distribution, take epochs of the of the uh, of the signals that you're collecting with these biosensors. Average them and then come up with an assumed theoretical mean and standard deviation moments and so forth. But then losing all this gross data that for me was precious because that was like uh, where the information most likely lied. So at the time uh, that I was thinking about these things, I was doing uh, a lot of computational neuroscience uh, models and working with cortical spikes to, um, which are basically uh, digital spikes and you do some transformation, get them into some kind of analogous continuous signal. And, and I was uh, working in that field of, the, of, uh, of spikes uh, and so forth. And I thought, why don't we take the continuous stream of behavior and invert this model. And we start out with this continuous analog signal turn it into a point process and and come up with a a digital spike. So we go the opposite direction. And in this way, we can study behavior naturally, but not just constrained to what the naked eye can capture, but go beyond the confines of the naked eye. So I did that. And then the same behavior then became a continuous stream that I would then transform into this thing that I call micro-movement spikes. And instead of assuming a priori, a theoretical distribution, I empirically estimated the family of distributions that most likely characterize all of the behaviors of this person and turn it into a kind of... Fingerprint or, or stochastic signature that let me uh, look into the dynamics of that nervous system as the person developed over time, and then we launched a series of studies to to actually test this paradigm. This was uh, one of them, in with uh, by D Wu, and she um, connected all these levels of of spikes. These are these dots here are the the spikes, the peaks of. Uh, of the movements as, as we move to a target and then retract our motions. Uh, and, and what we found was that there was an elevated n- uh, noise and randomness in non-speaking uh, individuals that uh, began to acquire some pattern and periodicity all the way to the neurotypical uh, speaking individuals. So we could actually model this and borrow all the computation and neuroscience Um, methodology to now study behavior uh, in in a different, completely different way. So this was a paradigm shift to the study of of human behavior, of natural human behavior, and uh, combined with the observation of behavior. So looking at the inside of the child, and indeed, the autistic system, this is the typical uh, profile of the autistic system. Uh, I'm plotting here, superimposing the, the speed profiles of the forward motion, the touch on the screen, and then the backwards. Uh, automate a spontaneous uh, uh, retraction of the hand, which happens incidentally, uh, and it doesn't really have an external goal or anything. But then you can see that uh, both in the frequency and temporal domain, there is a lot of noise and that noise and that randomness uh, impedes uh, the creation of a predictive code by the system because also this information serves as a reafferent uh, feedback to the brain. And that's what the brain is receiving. And we characterized it statistically. It turns out it, it, this uh, memory is random distribution appear ubiquitously in all the biorhythms of the autistic individual. So they cannot feel ease in this kind of uncertainty. So our job is to actually find ways to build accommodations, to actually dampen this noise and help them uh, uh, understand the world better. So, we did some math. We we figure out essentially how to get targets for treatment and how uh, to track the non-stationary nature of this code and and to study all sorts of behavior and digitize all sorts of clinical uh, uh, tests, including the ADOs, adapting other tests from other fields and and studying the 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 sort of the progression, the maturation of the system. So we, we did uh, cross-sectional studies, we did longitudinal studies. This is an example of a cross-sectional study from uh, ranging from three to college age and uh, seeing the the, tra- the the transition in probability space of the different types of states that, that the body, uh, how the body moves per- purposefully and how this doesn't happen in, in autism where, uh, Again, we're, we're looking for a target for treatment and published this in the, in the Journal of Neurocomputation. Um, and, and they did uh, find that uh, this maturation uh, uh, doesn't occur in, in ASD, but it, does, it, does, uh, it is possible to shift it to this uh, part of the space. So we found a, a noise to signal ratio uh, as a target for treatment that we could shift particularly utilizing the spontaneous variations in the movement and avoiding the prompting. And this gave us a way to begin to think of autism differently, defining a maturation path, defining a target for treatment, and revealing an age-dependent probability space that we we could track uh, across the lifespan. And then we decided, okay, so let's leverage the genomics layer. Now we we kind of solved the behaviors layer find the genomics layer, start looking at this signature, and uh, in a way, uh, uh, connecting it to behavior through this taxonomy of the states of the mental states and bodily states that ultimately depend on these three fundamental types of muscles, the cardiac for autonomic control, uh, the smooth for involuntary, and the uh, muscle skeletal for voluntary, which would give us the chance to connect to the the proteins and the genes that produce those proteins in a systemic way and study not just the brain, but study the entire system as it produces behavior. So we leverage all these different databases uh, of human genotype tissue expression, uh, of the safari database, uh, and of the disk disease association two, two, uh, uh, network, and OMIM, and, and, and came up with 20,923 genes from different diseases associated to different disorders, including neuropsychiatric and neurological and non-neurological, non- non-brain-related disorders like the cancers and the autoimmune and so forth. Uh, and studied these fifty-four tissues and the expression of these genes on the tissues to uh, begin to identify some of the uh, candidate tissue candidates that are most likely uh, or, or highly uh, these genes highly expressed in autism and that therefore might be most likely relevant to our quest. And so uh, we use this parsimonious way of doing things just looking at the gene expression, uh, counting and binning and studying in the context of a probability space using similarity metrics that would tell tell us the distance across these different disorders, based on the expression in these 54 uh, tissues and then uh, uh, Characterize uh, uh, autism uh, uh, and other other uh, disorders that go on and have a high intersection and perhaps go on to get, uh, receive the diagnosis of autism or not, but uh, also uh, understanding the the, the um, intersections, the, the the shared space in the gene space for these uh, twenty thousand plus genes, and and we uh, realize that schizophrenia, ADHD, and Parkinson's disease as the the three top. Uh, uh genes uh, um shared uh and also uh an autoimmune disease like lupus also has a high um uh a shared uh, space and then we also uh, uncover uh genes uh and and maximal expression in different uh areas that are shared across all these different uh, neuropsychiatric and neurological disorders. And then went on and looked at this in in a normalized uh, distance metric space uh, sense, scale, and, and, and realized that uh, indeed there is a continuum along the uh, neuropsychiatric and neurological disorders. And then they're very different. And the difference here, the higher, uh, the difference, the, the more uh, yellow or orange range of this color scale uh, with disorders like diabetes or cancers or or autoimmune and so forth. And then zoom in and realize that uh, there is a continuum from neuropsychiatric disorders in the DSM and, and neurological disorders that are Diagnosed by neurologists, and autism is right there in the middle, uh, sharing a lot of these uh, genes. So it, it's then it was important to look at the this the tissues most uh, most uh, with highest expression. Um, uh in these in these uh, uh gene uh pool and then so the uh cerebellum and cerebral cortex, uh, uh are the highest uh, uh expressed uh, followed by the frontal uh, uh, cortex and pituitary, pituitary gland and then regions that are fundamental for motor coordination motor control adaptation uh self regulation and emotion uh and and so uh, this gave us a sense of like now we know a little bit about uh, stratifying uh, autism based on these different overlapping disorders that share a common uh, genetic pool. And so how do we detect this the earliest possible time? It just turns out that neonates... Um, uh, there is a standard uh, test the auditory brainstem them uh evoke response test that is quite early uh, within hours of being born they they give this test and then uh, they longitudinally track it. Four uh, weeks uh, uh, later, and uh, and then uh, we received a, a set from the New York State uh, of, of data where we could look at these uh, latencies in in the different uh, uh, regions where this um, test is uh, tracked. So that so they give clicks and bursts, and then there is a wave. That propagates all the way to the primary auditory cortex. And it's a standardized how did they do this and how they look at this information. And so I thought, okay, uh, there is a literature out there. Let's have a look at how, uh, at what's happening here. And so with this uh, in mind, we looked at. About 70 babies and and two thirds of them went on to receive a diagnosis of autism at around three years of age. So uh, this is happening uh, a few hours after birth. And already you can tell that the babies that went on to receive the diagnosis of autism uh, along this pathway have a shift in their in their latency so there's a delay and not only that there is a very narrow bandwidth of uh, information that they are receiving and this is cumulative going through all these pathways of the eighth uh, cranial nerve all the way to the auditory primary auditory cortex and inviting to think really seriously this as a fundamental basic uh, block of everything else that happens with sensory processing integration and sensory motor transformations because This delay and this uh, narrow bandwidth is telling us that the system is not integrating the information in a way conducive of of experiencing a percept uh, the same way that somebody else uh, is experiencing out there in the world. And so this would impede um, uh, the the type of social interactions because it, it speaks to the sense of simultaneity that one needs to develop uh, in order to align all the different uh, temporal scales from different sensory modalities, ranging from microsecond to millisecond to second time scale, and if you don't have this at the basic uh, sound level, where everything is sound, you know, including motion is is also sound, so we we can't really communicate with the world. So so uh, importantly, uh, all these biosensors uh, at this very early age enables us to uh, follow these. Uh, a taxonomy that i'm proposing with all these different muscle types these three fundamentally different muscle types cardiac smooth uh, and skeletal to attract the levels of autonomy of the nervous system from the get-go and and frankly, we can do this at home and begin to understand how the system uh, evolves from from reflex to intent to cognitive intentional uh, acts, and how the system self discovers intent intentionality and bring this uh, bridge the the motor to the to the cognitive level and uh, do this in a way that is comfortable uh, to do it at home. And more recently in the lab, so, so we can uh, detect very early and more recently in the lab, even empower the parents and work with the families, give them an app that then enables us to track the babies, and essentially use the micro movements approach combined with the ABR that they get anyways to understand the nervous system of that baby from an early stage. And so this this, uh, is precision autism, it's leveraging the three major revolutions. And in in essence, what I'm proposing now is go to the next frontier and I call it the human kindness revolution at an inflection point that I feel it's happening with the community that is is bringing us from autism awareness, be our incumbent curve to the nascent curve of actually having this autism acceptance and and, and, and shift the paradigm to have a research-based community-driven approach that uh, builds accommodations and, and support for the autistic individual and doesn't see the autistic individual from an observant, uh, an observer vantage point, but rather for as a part of the human spectrum. So we should be redefining autism in the human spectrum. And this is what, uh, my research has been working, uh, toward. And I, I thank my lab, uh, and my many collaborators. And this is, uh, the end of my talk.
2: Jonathan, um, can I ask you something? Uh, are you feeling like this was a, you know, this is this is all a match in the way the the, the kind of the field is going at this field? I mean the, the way in which people's lives are being explored and assisted and engaged with at this point. Yeah.
3: So <clears throat> I mean it's all heading towards, to some extent, potential for personalized uh evaluation and treatment, right? So at the genetic level, you can clearly see personalized factors. Factors that are unique to this subset of cases are unique to this individual, um, and those point specifically to things that could be treated. Particularly if you have genetic therapies that might might specifically target that factor. Um, and again, this the same is so if you're if you're looking at at phenotypic or neuroimaging traits in these individuals, you may be able to combine that information. With the genetic data to get a better personalized assessment so um, i would say that at both in terms of neuroscience and and genetics that's where things are headed
2: yeah so liz what's what what, what kind of response have you got from because you you work with the community out there and, and yeah
1: so i i work with a community and this is what the community wants um they want a basically a paradigm shift where science looks at them as collaborators, uh, where the individual is not seen as something broken that needs to be fixed or or brought back to normalcy, but rather as someone who can flourish when given the support like everybody else. And so uh, that's sort of the philosophy uh, that I'm following in my research program. And I work with the families uh, hand on hand. This is all informed by what they want. And so, you know, with COVID, it's been a challenge because all behavioral research uh, virtually stopped. We couldn't go to the labs, the sensors, uh, you know, we had to reinvent pivot and reinvent uh, the whole thing. And uh, the silver lining was that we were able to, um, leverage off-the-shelf off uh, biosensors and send them home and simple Apple Watches, cameras and, you know, things that people can use at home. And so this empowered the families and made them into collaborators. So I treat, I mean, basically the families that collaborate with my lab and my center of excellence are my collaborators like any other researcher. So they tell us what they need. And this is pretty much the philosophy in other fields, like in Parkinson, we, we work with the caregivers uh, in ALS, in, in the ataxias, you know, it's a really a different approach than what I've seen in, in autism as a field. So it's, it's really uh, the, where we're going with this.
2: Yeah, you 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 actually mentioned to me. Um, you sent me a paper and mentioned that a book was coming out by Alicia Broderick and Robin Roschino. Is it? The, the, yeah, is it correctly? Um, and the paper itself was called Autism Inc. <laughs> the <laughs> INC, the Autism Industrial Complex, which is raising some of the points that, the, that came up earlier in the in the discussions, which which you're obviously very alert to. Could you speak to this a little bit, just a
1: yes uh, so I I uh, yeah in my uh, role of this uh, statewide center of excellence and in a st- you can imagine a state where the uh, prevalence of autism is, is is at its highest in the US um, you know all the problems that we have the families what they inform us is of these uh, they, they have been turned into a commodity and uh, there are several you um, I mean, it's an industry. Autism, autism became an industry. Um, it was branded uh, on, on, on. Uh, according to um, Alicia and uh, and Rosignot, uh our uh, brother Rick and Rosignot uh, as a um, as hope. First, uh, there was the there was the the aspect of giving hope to the parents for a child that was normal. That that we can bring your child to normalcy. Uh, and then here's the science that proves it. So trust us, we're doing the, the scientific thing. And what I found um, when I came to autism from the field of computational neuroscience was that uh, there was the science was really weak. I mean, there was no real rigor in any of it. It was not reproducible. Um, it, it was driven by. Um, you know, a model that is not really peer review, like like it is in our field. Uh, a lot of conflicts of interest. The journals were a handful of journals that were would not critique their own, um, you know, work. It, so it was a very different model than what we use in science. Uh, we we criticize each other. So we're open to criticism. We put it's open access. We we talk to each other. We respect. Uh, it showed that women, I I, I published that, and says, here's the caveats, you know, and this is what I'm telling you, but here's the caveats. So we need to look at the caveats. As, this doesn't exist in the behaviorism world. It's really uh, a very different uh, type, and there's no way for, it. I mean, it's all done by hands. And so this is what they call the science, and this is what they sell the families, and it's a multi-billion dollar industry per year. And so uh, the families, caught up with it. And it took a long time for them to, you know, catch up with this because it's not like, the way I look at it is like, if you're an engineering, right? And you build a bridge and the, uh, and you lie, the bridge, you know, falls down and kills a lot of people. And immediately, you know, this is a problem. So you can't lie, you can't afford to lie. But in this case, the lie and the misconception and the misdirection and the, the deception and so forth Took a long time because it took generations of people receiving these kinds of therapies to realize. Oh my God, this is not. This is inhumane. I mean, this is this is conversion therapy, gay conversion therapy adapted uh, to to children. It's it's a shame. I mean, this is a skinnerism. And the thing is that we're we're kind of experiencing in social media a little bit with all this fast reward and 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 the social media, uh, you know, stealing our our all, all our data and doing with it all kinds of things that are, um, you know, not unethical and so on. And so this is going on in autism, it's going on be, be, be behind the scenes. The researchers don't really know about it because the researchers are actually impacted by this whole autism inc uh, as well, but they just don't know about it. They were just go in with the flow. The only reason why I came across it is because I started working with the community doing public service. And the community then told me, "Okay, this is what's going on." And so now I'm onto it um, for a number of years now, and working with people in economics and other areas, not necessarily uh, neuroscience or genetics or anything like that, who can come up with a better model, a more humane model that actually helps us uh, help the families as part of our human spectrum, not as something you know different from us. good
2: yeah, good, Jonathan. I- comment on that you finding the same thing the concerns of the autism
3: community that that it's just a transaction Mm -hmm. that happens and then we all go about our lives and and it's not and there's no real focus on helping people I can see where that comes from because the way the way it's working right now is that we can really make a conclusion about an individual's um you know autism genetics in a small fraction of cases, can we say with high confidence that you have this disorder and 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 that we can start exploring potential treatments? And so, um, probably when, in our in our interactions with families and in our communication with families, I think it would be, we we could do a much better job of of really explaining what is happening in the in those personalized medicine cases which is where the focus is right now. So, so it, it's true that participation in a genetic study for probably 90% of individuals who enrolled in our study was a transaction that ended, it, it began and ended in one day. And that's the and that was the end of it for most people. But that's simply a matter, it has to, it has to do with our knowledge and our ability to um, actually draw conclusions from the genome. So maybe it was only 10% of families where we could return it. So, so let, let me actually back up. In at least 10%, it might be closer to 15% of research subjects in our study, we returned a genetic result to those families directly, right? So we 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 designed the study from the very outset to initiate that kind of um, of an interaction with the with the uh, family and with the primary care physician, and that we could initiate um, genetic counseling <clears throat> and then potential discussions regarding genetic therapies. But of course the therapies themselves are really still basic science research that's going on and so at this point it's it's still very um uh, preliminary so in terms but still um that that's probably not um evident it's probably not it's not visible to the broader community i think they really just see the the the, tra- the initial transaction and that's it
2: um uh, there was a question came in i don't know if i, I any of the three of you want to <clears throat> play with this one uh, put in terms of a little case study, parents with very high educational attainment history and high IQ scores had a son in their 20s. The son has a severe autism expressed with motor difficulties, speech difficulties, severe attention deficit as a high level guesstimate, which factors would be most likely to be in play. Now, That's the kind of thing you get presented with on a daily basis, Liz or, or Jonathan. I mean, what? what <coughs> go ahead.
3: Yeah, you you really wouldn't know until you actually sequence the genome, right? So it's it's not as if it's not as if you can predict it in advance. Um, but if you would if you were to just try to say what the trends were, um, you know, in uh, a, a fam, just say just because a family is young does not mean. That they i mean that the you know an older father has a higher risk of having a new de novo mutation but but you still have almost you know so it's only it's like 1.2 1.4 fold increased uh rate in the older fathers you still have a pretty significant rate in young fathers as well so so the etiology doesn't have to be fundamentally different so there could still be de novo mutations and undoubtedly there will also be um, polygenic risk so you really you really wouldn't be able to predict based on limited information what is the what is the ideology in a single case until you actually sequence the genome
1: at my end um what i tend to do is get uh kind of a sense of what the life of this kid is like day to day what you know what needs and this is a question really for uh the engineers the the people that do build things that can help build accommodations for the child and and make the life more comfortable and and uh, and achieve the the full potential because once you get this uh you know this support then it's it's easier it's just just like anybody else you know it's just and 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 so uh a lot of the you know a lot of the parents that's what they're asking for. How do I get my child to, you know, to do X in an easier way? You know, um, and one of the things that is helping a lot is like the, the iPads, you know, uh, for communication. And, and so if we could develop, uh, you know, leverage the cognitive scientific revolution and develop uh, uh, ways to communicate better, Um with support and so forth, that would be amazing uh, for the school system. Uh, so this is sort of like my take on it. Not as much uh, the part of genetic counseling or, you know, or the genetic part, uh, but more the, the the practical day-to-day life that that child. So it, it, there is like a disconnect. So we need to work together uh, across multiple fields to kind of, bring to them okay here's what they care about and can we build it um and and we have the conditions to do this we this the technology and and science has evolved uh to the point that we can do this
2: brian um could you speak to that from the the sort of um eurocrine perspective about the autism, and the various things that Liz has been talking about. I've been really interested to hear this.
0: Well, certainly as as a former adult epilepsy specialist before I joined Neurocrine earlier this year, when I hear about developmental delay, certainly because of my my training and my former expertise, I always want to know about the past and particularly whether there's anything suggestive of seizures. For instance, in CSWS, the disorder that we have a drug in right now, can certainly ultimately present with behavioral difficulties that can approximate an autism spectrum disorder. But what you often see in those instances that can separate it from other causes of autism spectrum disorder is that these children will develop normally earlier on and then suddenly much later in childhood have a regression. And oftentimes, although not exclusively, but oftentimes in the case of CSWS can also have comorbid seizures. So certainly hearing about the the young man that you mentioned in this case would certainly want to know more about the development leading up to that, and particularly about whether or not there was anything suggestive of seizures. One of the other disorders that I'll talk about in my talk that is sort of on a spectrum with CSWS is landau klefter syndrome, LKS, where the deficits involve predominantly expressive and receptive language, and certainly it sounds like from the case that you presented, that was a, was a very large issue that the caregivers were dealing with. I think, though, to go back to Dr. Torres, point, though, about this patient, what it brings out, especially if this patient has been suffering from autism for years and years, is just the absolute imperative need for early intervention and for for these avenues for treatment to be available through schools and through other avenues, because the earlier, just like with epilepsy, the earlier that you can treat with anti-seizure medications, the earlier that you can intervene with behavioral interventions the better. And so I would just stress once again, particularly for this young man, if these symptoms were present earlier on, it's just a a fault of the system. If this unfortunate man did not have interventions earlier that could have made a significant headway. Do
2: do you, with the the new um, discussions that are going on, um, the kind of things that uh, we, we talked about earlier, do you find any of you in an feel yourself in an awkward situation about how you navigate between being an imposing savior, as it were,
0: mm-hmm. or
2: a collaborator.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's, you know, certainly we would like to view ourselves as, as collaborators with physicians. And certainly when it comes to the studies that we're doing, for instance, in CSWS, we can't do that without close collaboration, not only with the investigators and the physicians that are treating these patients, but with the patients themselves and with their caregivers. And we certainly understand that. And, and at Neurocrine, we you know try not to look at ourselves as savers or anything, but look as partners in this journey together. And really looking at, at children who have this condition where they have a high unmet need, where with CSWS that can result in autism-like behavior, there is no approved treatments, no approved treatment strategies, really partnering with with caregivers, with families, and with the investigators that are taking care of them to see whether, for instance, our medication can make a benefit, but also really having an interaction with patient advocacy groups. And that's something that I've just been so pleased about with Neurocrine when I've joined is just that they have such tight connections with patient advocacy groups, not only for CSWS, but for other conditions that we're currently studying and that we have uh, medications that are under trials right now where we really have tried to, 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 not view ourselves as separate, but as equal and working together as a team to bring these, you know, potentially groundbreaking therapies ultimately to patients.
2: Did you notice anything? One of the questions I've asked for the, for the, for the panel for later on in the day um, is, is what effect the pandemic pandemonium has had in the sense that um, you know the whole notion of facial recognition of emotions. You're wearing a mask. Everything, everything changes. Uh, solitude is solitude good? Is solitude bad? Is that what something on the spectrum wants to do or doesn't want to do? Uh, why are they playing more Minecraft? Minecraft is uh, is having helping children with autism make new friends, according to reports and so on. Very interesting and completely um, surprising in some areas. What, what's been your experience of the of the
1: yeah, some one of some of the surprises are uh, that some of the some of the kids are very comfortable at home, uh, creating uh, online an online presence and having friends uh, online somehow shelter from bullying and other situations at the school. So we we launched a, a survey and, and found this out and and uh, one of the things we did at the center was uh, create. Uh, a horticulture program online that uh, they would you do um, planting and things like that, you know, learn about seeds and, and plants and what have you And this created social situations, uh, very interesting social situations online. And uh, so the pandemic actually wasn't as bad for uh, the people that we were interacting with um, as it was for other people um but i i don't know the whole answer to that i mean I, obviously we would have to have a, a very broad statewide poll to know but in the in the cases that the families we've been interacting with they they actually feel comfortable at home because they there's a layer of uh bullying and rejection and imposition of certain therapies they don't want uh that they don't they don't have to do this at home so it's a different type of interaction